the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You know the word heresy? It sounds like if you're a heretic, you are you are an awful, evil, almost criminal person. You're a heretic. I think being a heretic might be a good idea right about now. I think Neo, the rapper and singer, proved that recently. I think that Riley Gaines is a heretic. I think that Chloe Cole is a heretic. I think we've got a lot of good heretics these days. We need more. We need to continue building what I like to call the coalition of courage to um, counter some of the crazy narratives that are out there. But don't take my word for it. Let's go all the way across the pond and speak to one of the coolest writers I've spoken to to date. That is next. Now, it's time for some sanity. It's the Michelle Tafoya podcast. All right, welcome to this edition of the Michelle Tafoya podcast brought to you by Genucel. We appreciate Genucel for all their sponsorship. Thank you. And we'll tell you about their dark spot corrector in a little bit. But there's a new book out called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. It's written by a guy from the UK named Brendan O'Neill. And he writes for a, an online site called Spiked Online, which I recommend very highly. This guy is smart. He does his research. There's some uh, the British humor that we've all come to love uh, built into what he writes. And he, he will tell you in this interview that he's had varying reactions to his book, that a lot of people agree with a lot of it, but there are some people who disagree with some of it. But it is an easy read. It is fascinating. It is so well-researched. And I think more than anything, it will make you think in a way that you haven't to this point, or maybe even more importantly, it will give you the courage because you thought, yes, this is what I've been thinking all along. Someone's saying it really well for me. You're going to hear from Brandon O'Neill in one of the best interviews we've done on this podcast that is coming up next. But first I want to tell you, don't miss the most inspirational movie of the summer. Briarcliff Entertainment's The Hill starring Dennis Quaid. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of this movie. I can't wait to watch it beginning to end. Uh, It's in theaters Friday, August 25th, The Hill starring Dennis Quaid. It's the true live story of professional baseball player, Ricky Hill. He grows up poor in a small town, Texas, in Texas. Young Ricky discovers his extraordinary ability for hitting a baseball. But with leg braces and a degenerative spinal disease, the major leagues were just a dream that could never be. Courageously, he risks it all, defying his father's wish to follow in his footsteps and become a pastor. Ricky tries out for a major league scout, pushing hard to overcome his disability. He goes on to become a baseball phenomenon. Some dreams are unbreakable. The Hill starring Dennis Quaid, Colin Ford, and Scott Glenn. The true inspirational story about family, faith, and a baseball miracle. Don't miss The Hill, rated PG in theaters Friday, August 25th. Get your tickets now. 
you will not be disappointed. This is an incredible story. Coming up, Brendan O'Neill. He's across the pond. You'll love his accent and you will love listening to him. He's next. Brandon O'Neill, I so appreciate you coming on. Uh, I am a fan of your work, and I've read this book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. It's tremendous. It, it would seem to me that you as a writer would, would operate in a milieu of people who don't necessarily agree with everything you say, or am I just making that up? Well, first of all, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, yeah, I do mix with people who agree with me on some things and disagree with me on other things. And my favorite response to the book has been from people who say, I loved chapter one and chapter four and chapter seven, but I hated everything else. Or or at least <laughs> it, it, it wound me up. It made me angry. It made me question certain things. I like those kinds of responses because I like it when I read a book and I agree with some of it and I disagree with other parts of it. And I've had that response in relation to A Heretic's Manifesto. And I always appreciate that honesty from readers and that willingness to read things that might kind of jolt their minds in a particular direction that might make them feel uncomfortable as well as entertained, I hope. Well, entertained for certain. Um, yeah, I I took a screenshot of chapter one to send to a friend of mine because the title, it will jump out at you right away. The title of chapter one is Her Penis. And I just thought this is going to be interesting. But what you do in this chapter, I think, is so important because you tell the reader that you describe this thing that we're supposed to accept because this very small group in, in, in the public accepts this. And so we're all supposed to jump on board. But I've said from the beginning, this is craziness. Women, by definition, do not have a penis. So let's start with the chapter one, Her Penis. Uh, it, it's just such a great title. And I'm wondering how you settled on that. It's funny because uh, as soon as I thought to myself, I'm going to write a book on heresy uh, called A Heretic's Manifesto, I knew very early on what it would be called. I even knew that the subtitle would be Essays on the Unsayable. I made all those decisions very early on. And as soon as I decided, I knew that the first chapter would be called Her Penis. I knew that the first line of the book would be, we need to talk about her penis, which is the first <laughs> line of the book, because for two reasons. Firstly, I wanted to drag the reader in headfirst to let them know that this is going to be a, a crazy ride. We're going is to be talking about- Is that pun intended or no pun intended, Brendan, headfirst? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I really wanted to, to, to just get them thinking and get them, uh, get their juices flowing. And, and at the same time, I chose that issue for chapter one because I think it cuts to the heart of what I'm talking about in the book, which is the new authoritarianism and the manipulation of language in order to manipulate thought. And her penis is such a perfect example of that, yeah. because this is a phrase that is used in the mainstream media here in the UK. You will see it in the Times newspaper on the BBC. It's used in courts of law. Here in Britain, there have been trials of um, accused rapists, i.e. men. But because those men now identify as women, they are referred to in court as she. And you will literally hear statements like she took out 
her penis. I mean, you're supposed to tell the truth and nothing but the truth in a court of law. And yet here they are lying about the sex of uh, the accused person. So I wanted to dig down into that question and look at the way in which um, language is often controlled in order to control thought and in order to control how we think about ourselves and think about other people. So it's a perfect example, I think, of the new tyranny, the cultural tyranny yes. we all live under, where we're expected to change how we speak and how we think. Uh, this is this cuts right to the heart of something that is, to me, one of the biggest issues of the day, because I do think it's authoritarian. I do think it's it, it's people are trying to compel us to say and to use words and terminology that we haven't used in all of human history. And it started for me with pronouns when everyone started putting their pronouns at the end of their emails or on their, you know, at the playbill at the theater, a friend of mine who dances on Broadway, she's asked to put her pronouns next to her name in the playbill. And I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is really, you know, taking root. And he, he, a friend of mine was taking his kid to college and noticed that on all the dorm rooms, kids had their names and their pronouns. I, I mean, it's, I, I, it, to me, that was the first sign, and maybe, maybe I'm late to the party on this, Brendan. But I, I thought, what the hell? Are, why? We've never done this before. We, we haven't had to say what our pronouns are. I, I think people who know me, when I sign my name Michelle, you know, <laughs> unless there wasn't an e at the end, would know. And, and what the hell does it matter? I, what do you think about this whole pronoun? Uh, it, it's almost like a religion. Yeah, it has a very religious feel to it. And it's crazy. You know, Joe Biden once declared his pronouns, he, him. And I was thinking, Joe, no one is going to think that you are a she, her or a <laughs> zeezer. Everyone knows you're an old white guy and there's no problem with that at all. Right. I think it's um, there is a religious feeling to it. I think declaring one's pronouns has become like a declaration of being a good person. It's a very virtue signaling phenomenon. Yeah. People do it in order to say, look, I'm on the right side of this issue. I'm on the right side of correct, fashionable opinion. That's why I've got my pronouns in my uh, social media bio. That's why people whose pronouns are very, very obvious, like Kamala Harris, for example, yeah. she now has her pronouns in her social media biography because she wants to demonstrate that she's one of the good people. So there's very much a uh, an advertisement of one's moral decency in the eyes of the kind of social justice set. But at the same time, I think the compulsion that is put on other people to declare their pronouns is something that worries me enormously. We've heard about big businesses and banks and even the BBC here uh, putting pressure on members of staff to add their pronouns to their emails and to declare their pronouns whenever they get an opportunity. That kind of compulsion is wrong because that is like forcing people to convert to a new religion. Yeah. Because this is the religion of gendered souls. The whole point of declaring your pronoun is the idea that you believe that there is sometimes a magical, strange gender inside someone that might run counter to their biological casing, to their body, to their physical expression. I'm sorry, but most of us don't believe that. We don't believe that's true. We think it's a, a lunatic a uh, pseudo-religious idea and we reject it. So the pressure on people to declare their pronouns or to use certain pronouns, I see it as a very unenlightened attempt to make them genuflect to a new religion. And that's, that's deeply authoritarian. Hi. 
Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, quick time out to ask you a question. That dark spot on your face, is it still bothering you? And the liver spots on your hands and those on your neck and chest? Now you can watch them disappear safely and quickly in three minutes. Introducing the Genucel Dark Spot Corrector three-step, three-minute dark spot luxury system, and it does exactly what it sounds like. By using their Crystal's world-famous microdermabrasion before the dark spot corrector and finishing with a touch of the collagen-building Genucel XV, you'll see the dark spots disappear before your very eyes instantly, smoothly, and luxuriously. What you're watching on the screen are real results in just a couple minutes. It's, it's crazy incredible. But don't take my word for it. If you're not blown away with the results, you get 100% of your money back. No questions asked. Free shipping, free returns. So go to genucel.com slash Michelle now. Order the new dark spot treatment system today and say goodbye to those pesky spots tomorrow. That's genucel, G-E-N-U-C-E-L. Dot com slash Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. But there's more. All three products are included in Genucel's most popular package for August. So you get your Genucel bags and puffiness serum, also included all for 70% off retail. Experience the luxury and effectiveness of Genucel. Order now and watch those dark spots disappear in three minutes. 70% off the whole thing while supplies last. Genucel.com slash Michelle. G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Michelle with one L. That's genucel.com slash Michelle. Now we continue with Brennan on. You use the word Brennan fashionable. It's fashionable to do this, but you've also kind of referred to it. And I would agree with this, this description that it's feels like a new religion. Is this, you know, I've read a lot of history <laughs> and you have these moments in history where you think, oh my God, the earth was off, off its axis or something because people went a little crazy. Mm-hmm. How much do you think this is one of those moments or is this one where the toothpaste is out of the tube and we're not going back? I think we have gone crazy. I think we can see it all around us. We can see it in the language that we're encouraged to use, the ideas that are now accepted as being, um, well, not accepted in the mainstream, actually. There are still lots and lots of ordinary, decent people out there who reject some of these eccentric ideas. But within um, correct opinion circles, it is now accepted, for example, that a man can become a woman simply by clicking his fingers, even if he still has a beard, still has his genitalia intact. Uh, you know, we, we hear people talking about male lesbians. I mean, that is craziness. <laughs> that is insane. a version. 
That's a subversion of language. It's a subversion of reason. That's a form of lunacy that has impacted upon on the elites in particular. Um, but, it, you know, it can get really destructive. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching Chloe Cole, the detransitioner yes. in the U.S., yes. giving her testimony to the U.S. Congress. Uh, and, you know, when she was 12 years old, she was put on puberty blockers. When she was 15 years old, she had a double mastectomy. This is where it gets incredibly dangerous. And I, I recently wrote a piece saying that it feels to me that trans mastectomies and trans surgeries are the new lobotomies. You know, just we now look back on lobotomies in the 40s and the 50s and we say, how on earth did we do that to people who were simply mentally unwell, who simply had mental health problems? I think in the future, I hope if I'm feeling optimistic, I think in the future people will look back and say, are you serious? We, we removed the breasts from young women because they felt like they were men. I hope that at some point the culture will come back to its senses and we will recognize just how destructive the current moment has been. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Chloe and, and Chloe Cole. And uh, I think one of the things that may turn the tide and we're seeing it in Europe a little bit is it, these lawsuits that are now being brought against these doctors for sort of bullying parents and maybe convincing parents that if we don't do this, your kid's going to kill him or herself. And what, what would you rather have? And so, you know, in, in the, these, these are people who are not even a, a quarter of the way into their lives. Right. And, and their brains are not fully developed and we're and these children and we're letting them say, yeah, I really do think I want to just get rid of the boobs, mom. I really do. And, Instead of digging deep with some talk therapy or other approaches, we're just cutting to the chase. And I've seen journalists, quote unquote, legitimate journalists on American television say, well, if it's going to make the kid happier, why would you deprive them of that? Well, how do we know it's going to make the kid happier? Right. I mean, we don't we don't have proof of that. And in many cases we've seen, as in Chloe Cole, it's ruined her life to an extent. I really hope that young woman regains a sense of herself and a sense of joy somehow. But in the meantime, it's hard to, to not look at her and say her life is, it, it, this shouldn't have happened. So you're right. This is, this is similar to the lobotomy thing. Um, and I just, I don't understand how we've got people in places of journalism and medicine and academia who go along with this. Who are these people? Well, I think that's where we will need to have a big reckoning with all of this at some point. And I hope that point comes sooner rather than later, because, as you say, people's lives are being turned upside down in the most extraordinary way by some of these deranged ideologies. Chloe Cole refers to it as barbaric pseudoscience. And I think she's absolutely right about that. And, you know, let's think about this. In the United States, you can't buy alcohol until you're 21. But apparently you can agree to be mutilated on an operating table when you're 15. This makes no sense. And you know what? It makes no sense, I think, to the majority of people out there. They might be a silent majority at the moment because it can be difficult for people to express their dissent on this issue. And that's one of the themes of my book, the way in which dissent on these questions, in particular trans ideology, is very difficult to express. We know that women in particular who raise questions about this will be demonized as turfs and witches and far worse words than that. Some of them have lost their jobs. They've been blacklisted from university campuses. 
There have been physical assaults. We only have to look at what happened to Kelly J. Keane, also known as Posey Parker, when she visited New Zealand um, earlier this year. She was set upon by a heaving mob of feral misogynists who <laughs> wanted to get to her and attack her. So this is what I mean when I say that we live in an era of extreme conformism where heresy is being violently punished in some situations. And that's why I think we need more brave heretics. And I would count Chloe Cole as being in that number, someone who is incredibly brave, very valiant, standing up against peer pressure and political pressure and telling the truth. And more truth telling, I think, is probably the best way out of the current situation. A couple more examples. I, there's so many things I want to get to here with you, but uh, Riley Gaines is a, a swimmer here in the United States who swam at the University of Kentucky. She's been a warrior on this issue, uh, speaking out against competing against Leah Thomas. It, in your neck of the woods, J.K. Rowling, uh, the, the author of the Harry Potter series, there is a museum in Seattle, Washington, that wants that wants to promote the whole Harry Potter series, but erase J.K. Rowling from it. To lessen her impact, they say, because the one issue that J.K. Rowling deviates with her usual liberalism, it, it deviates from, it, is this gender issue. Uh, she doesn't want to be called a menstruating person mm -hmm. or a birthing person. And I'm sure you've seen this a lot more up close than we have. How is she received in the U.K.? It's, it's such an interesting question. And, you know, I would I would disagree with J.K. Rowling on maybe 60 percent, 70 percent of political issues, especially Brexit. Just to take one example, I'm a firm supporter of Brexit and she was a firm Remainer. Um, but you know what? When it comes to this issue, I consider her, her a heroine of reason. She is really standing up for truth. She's standing up for women. She's standing up for scientific reality. And she should be cheered for that. Now, the, the, the great thing about J.K. Rowling is that she is uncancelable. Right. She can't be cancelled. She, yeah. She's too famous. She's too rich. She's too widely known. She's, she's a cultural institution. So she has that luxury, I think, to be able to express herself, although I still think it's very admirable that she does because she could easily just have a qui the quiet life of a billionaire rather right. than someone who has been subjected to death threats and rape threats almost every day, simply for expressing biological truths. In the UK, she is really hated by politically correct people. They call her a turf. They say she's evil. They say she's a bigot. But amongst ordinary people that I speak to, people think she's very brave and they, they agree with her. They agree with her that there are men and there are women and there are some situations in society where men should not enter into women's spaces, for example, where women have to get undressed right. or where they have to sleep or where they have to do something that they don't want a man to to see or to watch. She's absolutely right about that. These are perfectly reasonable, rational requests to make, which would have been seen as normal by the vast majority of people just six or seven years ago. Yeah, so it's the it's the swiftness in which reasoned ideas can fall away and and come to be seen as bigotry that's another thing that worries me about the current moment because of what you said she's being called evil she's mm. being called these names that are so not in alignment with with what you would say about someone who has a differing opinion yeah. from you and it, it, to call someone an eagle to evil person to to um you know, suggest that you want to rape this woman or hurt her for her opinions. This is like another one of your chapters, witch finding. This is like we're all on a big witch hunt 
and we just can't wait to find the next person to cancel. There is a a, a rapper, singer, songwriter in the in the United States named Neo, yeah. and you may have heard this story. He was recently on a podcast where he said, "Look, I don't understand what's going on with parents. If my five year old came to me and said, Dad, I, I want to be a, a girl. I'm a boy, but I want to be a girl. Well, I'm not going to take that kid to go have surgery. I'm just not. That's not me. Well, the next day, his publicist made him issue an apology. So they printed out an apology. And then he later came out and took a video of himself saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is me now. This is not my publicist. I stand by what I said. And if you all want to cancel me, I'm fine with it. I'll, I'll, I'll make my way. Uh, again, a brave statement to make, um, although, as you mentioned, he, he is a wealthy man, not quite J.K. Rowling status, but <laughs> close, and 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 has his supporters. So it was not as much of a risk for him, but I think for maybe the average person, we, we've got to build this sort of coalition of courage. Your, your second chapter, Witch Finding, just makes me, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, this is kind of what we're doing. We're, we're sitting and we're waiting for people to trip up and blame stuff on them. You kind of use this in a way to talk about the climate crisis. Um, this is not to say that, I mean, I don't know what your stance on climate change is. I'm, I'm not smart enough to really have a scientific stance. I, I trust kind of a, a an even-handed approach to this, but it does seem like we want to end ice cream trucks and pizza stoves and air conditioning for the sake of climate. And, and this is really how you get to, to the witch finding. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my view on climate change is that it's happening and there are certain measures we should probably take to alleviate the worst impacts of climate change. I like to have clean air and clean water. And I think all people deserve that. They deserve to live in a, a nice environment. Uh, but the the climate change agenda, I think, is something very different. It's become a very political, ideological agenda full of the politics of fear. So look at the way the language changes. It goes from climate change to climate emergency to climate yeah. crisis. And now it's global boiling. The head of the UN uh, a couple of weeks ago said we the, the era of global warming is over and now we have the era of global boiling. It's simply untrue. Even though we have some wildfires in southern Europe at the moment where it's very hot, the fact is that um, less of the Earth's land is currently being consumed by wildfires than was the case 20 years ago. So even that has improved. So I'm sorry, but very often they're lying to us. When we see those front pages on the newspapers saying the planet is on fire, it's not on fire. Um, so I think one of the things that irritates me about the climate change issue is, again, the manipulation of our emotions through the use of fear. And I think that's a very patronizing way to approach a serious political issue. And the point I make in that chapter, I just compare it to the witch hunts of the 1500s and the 1600s. I think lots of people don't realize that lots of those witches who were burnt at the stake or, or hanged, they were often accused essentially of climate change. They were accused of bringing about contrary weather, which destroyed crops or which caused lots of cold weather and, and made people's lives very difficult. Very often, the accusation was that they were climate witches, that they had somehow controlled the weather to impact harm on, on everyday people. So it, it's, it's worth making that comparison, I think, between the climate change hysteria of the 15 and 1600s and the climate change hysteria we have today. The, the point I make in, throughout the book is that 
we we might not have witch trials anymore. It would be illegal these days to to put a woman on trial for supposed uh, witchcraft. But we have the atmosphere of the witch trial. We have the feeling of the witch trial. And that's something I think we need to counter and really push back against. It's it's amazing to me uh, because one of the things that I notice in in this whole um, this such this polarized world in which we're living, in which there are the blamers and the people they blame for everything, and the blamers, the people that seem to me to harbor the most, the, the fiercest hatred or the fiercest anger toward the rest of the world, are the ones that have the signs in their yard that say. Black lives matter. Science is science. All love is real. There are no illegal, you know, the, all the virtue signaling. And they seem to just, they, they present themselves as these kind, gentle, loving, inclusive people, but they hate yeah. anyone that disagrees with them. And this is such a strange place to me. And I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm fearful I wonder what you think about, and I, I don't know that you covered this in the book, everything that I wrote or I read, I did not see it, but I worry about this coming election in the United States. Uh, we've got an old man who doesn't know where he is half the time, and we've got another old man who is capable of really just dividing the country like no one I've ever seen in President, former President Trump. Um, and it, it it seems to me the tone that gets set yeah. often sort of it's like a, a stone in a pond. It sets off this ripple effect across the globe. What, what are you how are you looking and viewing this upcoming election? Yeah, it's interesting what you say about hate as well, because I've noticed the same thing, which is it's the noisiest virtue signalers who are often the most hateful people. Yes. I mean, the, the way they talk about people they disagree with. Or people lower down the social ladder, uh, for example, people in um, Rust Belt America or in, yes. in the northern parts of England here in the UK, um, they talk about those people as if they are the scum of the earth. I mean, it, you know, I, I'm not Trump's biggest fan, let's say, mm -hmm. but I do understand why lots of people voted for Trump because they wanted to, you know, stick it to the establishment that had been failing them for so long. But the way in which those voters are talked about, uh, you know, a basket of deplorables, uh, Biden referred to some of them as semi-fascists. They're seen by, you know, the East Coast elites as basically stupid rednecks. I remember there was one piece that said they voted with their lizard brains. You know, instead of thinking rationally, these people are very visceral and they vote with the kind of the, the lizard instinct that still lurks within certain human beings. We had the exact same thing in the UK after the vote for Brexit. Uh, Brexit voters are referred to as low information. I have a chapter in my book about the insult gammon. They're often referred to as gammon, which obviously means pig meat. You know, they're so unintelligent. They're so lifeless. They're so uncultured. So that bile and hatred that is poured on ordinary people very often comes from people, as you say, who march behind banners saying love is love and respect yeah. everyone and black lives matter. So the hypocrisy is staggering. And I think we're likely to see some of that in the U.S. election. My feeling, I think the prospect of Biden versus Trump again is a depressing one because yeah. you do you do think to yourself, where is the new stuff? Where are the new politicians? I had a lot of um, hope for Ron DeSantis, but he seems to be messing up a bit here and there. He's not as um, 
convincing as he was a few months ago. So you do look at American politics and British politics too, and you think, where is the new blood? Where are the new ideas? Where are the younger, fresher people with real principles? So we're going through the motions. It feels like Groundhog Day. And I do think the time has come to inject a bit more spark and principle into politics. And I hope that happens soon. Uh, I I hope so too. I just, I don't see it on the horizon yet. So I I don't know. Um, Your final chapter in this book, which we'll touch on here is words wound. Uh, You know, I, I grew up learning that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. And we are raising a culture of humans, people, girls and boys, uh, who who describe words as violence. They describe feeling unsafe around certain words. Um, I'm speaking words right now, and I don't see anyone getting physically hurt by the words that I speak. So I, I'm is I, that's another part of this, and that's an overarching thing here that we started with is language, trying to manipulate people to speak in certain ways that that almost make us robotic and sterile and inhuman. It's, it's really frightening. What, what did you want to do with words wound? Yeah. So the point I make in that chapter, that's been a bit of a controversial chapter. I've had some very interesting feedback on it because um, I completely agree with you that words are not violence. I think that's one of the most slippery arguments of our time. And yes. it's a dangerous argument because if we see words as violence, then we justify the use of violence against certain words. You saw that you know, perfectly with the Charlie Hebdo massacre, for example, in 2015. If we constantly tell uh, you know, radicalized Muslims in Europe that any criticism of their religion is a violent assault on their self-esteem, it's going to wound them, it's going to hurt them, then eventually uh, some of them, thankfully a very small minority, will think it is legitimate to use violence against the people who criticize their religion. So we're playing a dangerous game when we conflate words and violence. But th- but the secondary point I make in that chapter is that the the temptation when we hear you know, young conformists or illiberals or censors, when we hear them saying words hurt us, they're wounding us, they're they're causing us pain, the temptation is to say they're just words, relax, get over it. And and my argument is I think we need to resist that temptation and we need to recognise that words are not violence, but they are powerful. And they're actually the most powerful tool we have to push back against the unreason of our times. So in that chapter, I look at some uh, cases from history where very radical, daring, heretical people use their words in a very disorientating, powerful way in order to change society for the better. And one example I use is William Tyndale, who was a Protestant, a zealous Protestant reformer in England in the 1500s, who translated the Bible into English. And that was a a, a crime punishable by death. The Bible was only supposed to be published in Latin. And he said, no, I think ordinary people should have the right to read the Bible for themselves. And he was eventually caught. He was strangled to death. He was burnt at the stake for the crime of translating the Bible into English. And the point I make is his words were quite wounding to the authorities of the time. They were destabilizing. They did have a a, a discomforting impact on society. But he was absolutely right to do what he did. He pushed forward the cause of freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. And without his heresy, 
our world would not be quite as free as it is right now. So we should learn from those examples, use our words wisely, but never be afraid to use them in a powerful way and try to make society better for everyone. Can't think of a better place to leave our conversation, although I could talk to you all day. Uh, the book is fantastic. I hope that that people will go order it wherever you can order it. A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, Brendan O'Neill, what a pleasure to have you. I hope we can do this again because it's it's really, um, I don't know many people who are willing to dig back into the research in the 15 and 1600s and find examples that are pertinent to the world we live in today. So I admire you for that. Uh, I find your writing so entertaining and engaging, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. He is Brendan O'Neill. The book is A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. It's brave, so I'll say this as I sign off every time. Be brave and do good. And go buy this book. You will not regret reading this book, no matter where you stand. It's fantastic. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.